This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back, every Bendy Body. This is the Bendy Bodies podcast, and I'm your host and founder, Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. This is going to be a great episode, so be sure to stick around until the very end so you don't miss any of our special hypermobility hacks. As always, this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for personalized medical advice. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Dacre Knight here with me. Dr. Knight established a specialty clinic for treating patients with hypermobility syndromes, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, otherwise known as HEDS, and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorder, HSD, at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville, Florida in 2019. Prior to joining Mayo Clinic, Dr. Knight was an assistant professor of medicine at St. Louis University. He also served four years as an Air Force physician at Scott Air Force Base and was the director of Phase Two Clinical Laboratory Education Program and chairman of the Life Support Function Committee. Dr. Knight, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Yes, hello, and, and thank you so much for allowing me to be here with you today. I'm really excited to be here. I'm super excited to chat with you. We, we've uh, chatted a couple of times, and I'm so excited for, for the audience to get to hear directly from you and, and hear about your incredible experiences. And I want to start out by asking you, how did you get interested in EDS in the first place? Yeah, I, I, I know it's, uh, it's a funny <laughs> thing because some people, they, they come on to it, and they, they, uh, and they probably didn't want to be here, and then some that it came on to it because they were interested in it. And I would uh, say it's probably more the latter because uh, when I had uh, completed my service in the Air Force and joined Mayo Clinic, there's you know, a world of opportunities of research and all sorts of clinical conditions and rare diseases and things like that that you can get involved with. And one of them came up as uh, as running the Ehlers Danlos Syndrome Clinic because they had you know some shift in staff and things like that and and. Really, what it came to is uh, I was volunteering to do it because I had found interest in it, and I thought it would be a good area to build up uh, some research and and kind of move forward in our understanding of the condition because it was very intriguing to me. Um, and, and I had encountered patients in the past, not in a formal setting of an EDS clinic, um, who had these conditions. And so knowing that this was an, there was an opportunity to really develop it further you know, struck my interest. And, and it's been uphill and, you know, hit the ground running ever since then. So very exciting. I, I'm sure, I'm sure it must be quite a, an interesting experience. And I just can't wait to hear all your insights and everything from all these uh, patients that you've seen and research that you've done. In terms of the specialists and the multidisciplinary type clinic, that you have. Um, are there other physician specialists there? I know you also refer out to other specialties. How does that work? Yeah. So in the typical Mayo Clinic model is that we, you know, we have as many specialists as we can all in one setting, all under one roof so that mm -hmm. we can work together. And it's a very unique setting. It's, it's not, you know, unique as nobody else does it in anywhere in the world, but it's unique for the purpose of, you know, giving patients the benefit of having the specialty evaluations without bouncing around and trying to reduce some of that silo effect, which I know is out there in the community a lot. And 
and it can be a hindrance. Um, but, you know, for example, there was some of this to some degree when I was in the Air Force where we had a clinical setting with radiologists just down the hall from me and things like that. So it's, it's not unique, but it is very beneficial to patients. So, um, yes, yeah, so within our EDS clinic specifically, it's you know, two providers. It's uh, working here with um, uh, Shilpa Gajrawala, who is a, a PA and has uh, recently joined us and um, has been a great help to allow improved access for our patients to come in and uh, decrease the wait times and things like that. Uh, but then also we work very closely with our physical therapy and occupational therapy team, our pain psychology team and so forth. And, and I, I trained at Mayo, so I definitely am very aware of that. I've also been back as a patient um, to Rochester. So I, I definitely have been the recipient of that benefit of, you know, oh, something else comes up. Let's see if we can get you in. And in some instances, they got me in that same day. And then yeah. it did seem like there was much better communication between the different departments. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not perfect, but, you know, anything mm -hmm. we can do to, to improve that communication, that flow. And that was something that was really interesting to me when I was offered the job at Mayo Clinic is because I was talking to a lot of the colleagues who had been here for a long time and they say how they still just, you know, pick up the phone and call the oncologist if they got a question about it, you know, blood counts and things like that on some test results. And, you know, we can get formal consultations if we need, but if you need to just curbside someone, hey, you know, I've got this patient, what's going on? What do you think? What should I look at? It's it's so helpful. And and it's daunting when you're coming out of medical school and residency that you're just, you want to go out there all on your own. Uh, but to know that there is you know, support in this network to, of other like-minded individuals that want to help patients and understand conditions and things like that, it's, it's really a nice safety uh, backup and fallback. Yeah, that, that's really fabulous. One of the things that I thought was interesting, it looks like you do an echocardiogram on all the patients that come to the EDS clinic. Are you still doing that? And then what laboratory testing is typically performed? And of course, we'll talk about genetic testing later on. So I'm thinking about what other lab testing is usually done. I'm happy to go through all of those things because a lot of these things evolve, as you know, and mm -hmm. as our understanding evolves just scientifically from whatever the condition is. And in EDS and HSD, there's so much that we're learning is still so much we still have yet to learn. Uh, but um, one of the research studies we're just wrapping up, actually, we're just submitting it for publication now, is data that we've collected on echocardiograms for our patients. Mm. Because you're right, and looking at um, our papers that we've done previously on kind of the flow and the process of our clinic, we did typically get echocardiograms on mostly all of our patients. Uh, because, you know, several things. Uh, one is that there's part of the diagnostic criteria that looks at echocardiogram mm -hmm. findings, so mitral valve prolapse and aortic aneurysms and things like that. And there have been some other similar studies on this same topic in the past. Uh, but um, what we wanted to look at with this recent research study was just to see what are kind of the findings that we see at a larger scale. So with a larger sample of patients, uh, there um, was some evidence that we're seeing that the echocardiogram findings are actually not much different, really not different at all compared to the general population. Mm. And so that, as previous studies had also established, it, it warrants to, you know, of course, we do cardiac exams on all of our patients. So we do the auscultation. We listen to hear what we can find of just using our stethoscope and, and doing the things that we do on physical exam. So that's still absolutely warranted and indicated. And if there are findings from that, 
then we would um, have an echocardiogram ordered. But just off the bat, just because there is presence of hypermobility and knowing through these large samples of patients that there is not any increased prevalence compared to the general population, then there's no indication for doing echocardiogram for every single patient unless there are those cardiac findings on exam. So uh, to answer your question, no, we don't do an echocardiogram on every single patient unless we find some abnormalities or some information from the history or family history, things like that, that might um, serve us to investigate a little bit further. Okay, great. And then what about other like blood work that you might do? Yeah, so um, that uh, has changed a little bit in, in some ways. I, actually, I would say we probably broadened that, you know, whereas like mm. the echocardiograms, things like we kind of narrowed it down, zeroed in our focus, try to conserve resources and, you know, in, insurance billing and things like that. If it's not necessary, if it's not changing management. Uh, but some things for the lab work uh, have been pretty consistent in some regards. So we do, and also we have to consider what maybe are the labs that patients have recently received. You know, if they just saw the primary care doctor and they got, you know, certain labs done, you know, of course we don't need to repeat them if it's just a matter of days or weeks ago and things look normal and no major changes or medication changes since then. But still, uh, we do want to get things that, you know, like a complete blood count, um, metabolic panel, things like that, just so we get some basic assessments on other contributors that might be symptoms of another condition uh, separate from HSD or HEDS. So things like, you know, anemia can be contributing to fatigue. So do we need to look at the blood counts and hemoglobin and things like that, or other chronic infections? Maybe we look and see if there's any sign of leukocytosis, elevated white blood cell count. Um, and so, so we do that, just a complete blood count, general chemistry, same thing. We want to make sure organ function, um, as, as far as signs we can take from blood work. So kidney function, liver function, electrolytes, sodium, potassium, um, is all where it should be. And then, uh, some of the other ones in vitamin D level thyroid, of course, as we know, thyroid function can have implications on fatigue, energy levels, um, uh, temperature, um, tolerance as well. Uh, so we, we do those pretty standard. Um, and then the ones that we, so we've added on probably a little bit more of an investigation now of some other autoimmune markers too, but we don't really dig too deep, but just kind of things on the surface. So maybe, um, some inflammatory markers, CRP, ANA, and then some mast cell screening as well. So tryptase and, and some urine mediators too. Uh, because as we're learning more, that there may be some involvement of those conditions, too, with our patients with HSD. And, and this is just something that we gain from what is out there in the literature and, and research that's going on. So so that's really interesting. So you're doing some MCAS testing through tryptase and maybe urinary leukotrienes and things like that on, yeah. on most of your patients, or at least a mm -hmm. substantial portion. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah because uh, you know, like I said, most of our patients have some degree of fatigue, some degree of um, whether it's you know an allergy condition that may not be just typical allergies, but maybe there is some gut involvement, some you know gastrointestinal disturbance or some neurologic effects. Even that's kind of in the range of headaches. You know, so so much overlap from mast cell and all those symptoms too of HSD and HEDS. So we we want to make sure we don't miss anything there. Yeah, definitely. And you've already mentioned some ways in which the clinic has evolved since its inception. Are there other, you know, significant changes that you would like to share with us? 
Yeah. So I, I feel like it's always something new every week. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, because, you know, there's um, the number of patients we have, have seen has increased. Uh, and that's great. I mean, as you know, and, and others who are listening in, I'm sure know that there's a lot of long wait list at a lot of places. There's mm -hmm. some difficulty to get access in some locations to providers who know. So we wanted to improve on that. Um, and, and we have. So like I said, we added uh, Shilpa to our team. Uh, but other ways that we've changed so that the testing, you know, made some minor changes there, um, lab work, echoes and things like that. Um, our involvement with physical therapy and occupational therapy has been pretty consistent. I mean, that's one thing that is pretty uh, it's continuous and it's a constant uh, since our inception. We've added a, a treatment program too, although that's not that new anymore now. Uh, that's our, our day-long virtual uh, group treatment program. And there's some, of course, some adjustments that we make there on length and topics that are covered. Um, so it's it's always, there's always something new. <laughs> I'm sure. And I love how the clinic was developed and immediately integrated with research. And you've already published some great papers, including your 2022 paper, Establishing an Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome's clinic, lessons learned. And then you talk about uh, one of the tables has like the referrals. And of course, it's not surprising to see, you know, a PT and OT near the top and also pain clinic and GI were also near the top. Uh, rheumatology was a little lower down on the list. And I think it was like 33% of patients are referred for uh, rheumatologic evaluation. Are a lot of patients coming to you already having had a rheumatologic evaluation? And um, what are your thoughts about, you know, kind of ruling out rheumatologic conditions that might explain a person's symptoms? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, yeah, to the, to the first part, we, we do have a fair number who have already had rheumatologic evaluations prior sure. to being seen. And again, back to the access issue, uh, I, I know many patients kind of look far and wide to see who knows anything about these conditions. Sometimes it's rheumatologists, um, or, or maybe sometimes rheumatologists in the com community have been put to task to just try to evaluate some of the symptoms like you know, the joint pain or widespread pain. Um, they ruled out the autoimmune condition part, and then they say this suggests maybe it's hypermobility or something that's kind of out of my scope. And then patients kind of just by uh, course of elimination go through uh, the next steps to see who else might uh, be able to evaluate their symptoms. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so the, the short answer on that is that we do have quite a number of patients who have had rheumatologic evaluations and sometimes even internally, too. So we do take referrals from our rheumatology colleagues here at Mayo mm -hmm. Clinic. Um, if it's kind of the same course, they've done evaluation for joint pain and 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 then they've ruled out autoimmune conditions and, and suggest or, or see signs based on Biden score and things like that, that it might be some features for hypermobility. So uh, then as far as your question about what do we do about the autoimmune investigation. So just as I tell a lot of our patients too, and we get this asked a lot, you know, because I have, you know, potentially some sort of inherited disorder of the connective tissue, uh, which as we define it is separate from acquired disorders of the connective tissue, which is where we're talking about autoimmune and, and things where your immune system is attacking the connective tissue or causing uh, symptoms that way uh, Two totally separate pathways. So, you know, we get asked, you know, am I more prone to having rheumatoid arthritis or another autoimmune condition? The answer off the bat is no, not necessarily, because these are two separate pathways. One, we're talking about how the tissue develops and how it's formed in the body versus one, how it is 
interrelated with the immune system and that may be overactive in some ways. So separate pathways. Now, however, what we do see very commonly is the overlap of the symptoms. So joint pain can certainly be involved with both. So it does warrant, I believe, an investigation of both with your, when you have a presentation of, of what could be either inherited or acquired disorder of the connective tissue. So hence the reason why rheumatologists are sometimes seeing patients with what may be a genetic condition, and sometimes geneticists see patients um, who may have a rheumatologic condition in the end. So from our end, uh, when we see patients who may have rheumatologic concerns, so we do do a, a joint inflammation, kind of cursory to what a, a rheumatologist might do, but at least to just get an initial assessment to see if there is there significant swelling or redness or warmth in the joints. Is it affecting multiple joints or is it just one-sided? Uh, and then some of those, like I mentioned, the, those laboratory markers, which we've expanded on a little bit just to make sure we're covering all aspects of screening that we can. So inflammatory markers, um, ANA, rheumatoid factors, and things like that, that at least help us get an idea um, where to go from there. So we do, we do ultimately do some sort of an autoimmune evaluation as well. That's uh, great. And it's really appreciated that you're explaining the difference between an inherited connective tissue disorder and an acquired one, because I think that is something that is often really confusing to people. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, POTS clinic was the third most common referral after PT and OT. And I do orthostatic vital signs on a lot of my patients, you know, like 10 minutes. It takes up a lot of time out of the visit. But I do that quite frequently because, of course, a lot of our patients have orthostatic intolerance at, at the very least. And then we want to evaluate them if they might possibly have POTS. So what are your criteria for sending someone to the POTS clinic? And do you know what percentage of those referrals are ultimately diagnosed with POTS, uh, um, orthostatic intolerance, or some other form of dysautonomia? Yeah, another great question. And this is, again, kind of on that theme of where we have so many overlapping conditions, right? Mm -hmm. And so many right. overlapping features. And then our, our job as a clinician is to try to parse it out and see what's what and kind of help patients understand what's causing what, although we may not always know. Um, so we do want to you know, screen for whatever we can. So the POTS and the dysautonomia, orthostatic intolerance is is a big is a big one as at least part of our screening goes. Uh, now, what the findings may be, it can certainly vary from patient to patient. Um, so, at least we start with asking: Have you even been evaluated for POTS? Do you even know what POTS is? Has this ever come up in your history? Um, more often than not, I should say, because our patient population, as you also know, is very well educated, and yes. at, at that point, they've come to see us. They've already done a lot of reading. Um, and got their got themselves up to speed on a lot of these uh, comorbidities. So most often, I can simply just ask a patient, "Have you ever had an evaluation for POTS? Has that ever come up?" And and you know, either yes, I have. I've been diagnosed. Okay, well, what's kind of the treatment uh, that you're under right now? How's that going? Or um, I have been evaluated, and, I, and it wasn't POTS. Um, or um, you know, and a lower percentage, I would say, is, you know, I have no idea what is that. And then so we'll kind of explain, well, this is, these are some of the symptoms you might notice. So, you know, racing heart, positional tachycardia, uh, upright specifically. So sitting to standing, uh, the orthostatic intolerance might be some of those conditions of the dizziness, lightheadedness that um, are positional as well. So we just kind of go through that uh, pathway uh, to see what they might report. 
Um, and if it does look like it's indicated, so then we do do testing for POTS. So uh, this, we're fortunate that we have one of the 22 sites, I think I just learned because I was actually with our autonomic technologist yesterday, kind of shouting her going through the process of, of their flow just to understand that better. But uh, 22 sites, I think, in the country that have this specific form of autonomic testing mm. that we do that is quite comprehensive. So long story short, we do the screening, ask the questions. If it's indicated, we'll put in the order for that autonomic reflex screening. And uh, this is a, a test where they check their heart rate and blood pressure in different positions. It's not a full tilt because some of those symptoms can be quite profound if someone does have uh, postural tachycardia syndrome. Uh, so what they will ultimately do, and they'll do some of the sweat testing, what's called QSART. Uh, so we'll do acetylcholine on the skin and try to assess sweat gland activity to get another type of autonomic function assessed. But then looking at the heart rate and see the variable changes with symptoms, uh, which would, if present, be diagnosed as POTS. And then if that is the case, then that's kind of as you're asking, how do we route, determine to route patients to our POTS clinic? Um, so that's the answer. If it's diagnosed as such, now if it's not, um, and but we come back, we've reviewed the test results with the patients, and we still determine they have quite significant symptoms, even if they, there's not that specific heart rate change. Mm -hmm. uh, then you know this could certainly be the orthostatic intolerance that so many more patients are dealing with, and a lot of the same management practices go into that. So then we'll have some counseling on how do we manage orthostatic intolerance. Uh, in many ways similar, so you know, adequate oral hydration, lower extremity, maybe compression stockings, resistance exercises, and things like that. Uh, but and to add, answer your question about numbers, so I think it's it's pretty close to what we have seen in other studies about prevalence of POTS and orthostatic intolerance uh, in the community. So um, where we are, I would say that uh, about. 20% of our patients with HSD or HEDS have some clinically defined POTS, and then a much higher percentage of those with some degree of orthostatic intolerance. And I'm talking about three quarters of our patients with that. Mm -hmm. um, so we still have a, a real importance on getting them that information and counseling on treatment. So there's only 22 centers in the in the U.S. I take it this this is that actually do the full autonomic uh, reflex screening. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So there's various ways of doing it, and I mean, some ways you can you know kind of do the poor man's tilt, right? You just right. you sit down, you stand up, you check your heart rate, and things like that. Um, but um, and, and that works if that's all you've got. Fine, it's something mm -hmm. to go off of. Uh, but if we want to get all the details of what is the variability and how much of, um, you know, if, of implication might there be as far as other defects in the autonomic nervous system, because there's a lot to it, right? It's not only heart rate right. control. Right. So um, if there's anything else that could be warranting therapy, yeah, it's good to have that information. That's it's great information to have. And I, and I, get frustrated when oftentimes patients will have seen a cardiologist and the cardiologist does a tilt table test. And I feel like so often, uh, at least in private practice, they will view it as a cardiac condition and really just look at the cardiac effects and not consider yeah. the gastrointestinal and the temperature regulation and all those other things that you mentioned. Right. So. 
Exactly. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of problems arise very quickly, as you can imagine with that. Yeah, Uh, uh, definitely. In the same 2022 paper, you talked about that on the first 483 patients that you did genetic testing on, you found no pathogenic connective tissue variants in 70%. You found VUSs are inconclusive results in 28%. And pathogenic variants are variants of unknown significance, likely pathogenic in 2%. Do you think those findings are pretty consistent with what you've been seeing more recently? And also, uh, and probably this is the more important part, how do you determine which patients to test? Because I think this is something that a lot of people find frustrating and, and confusing. Sure. And I've, I've been that, asked that quite often, actually, <laughs> yeah, about the genetic testing. But to start uh, with, so, um, yeah, the numbers on genetic tests and I should say this is something that has involved, evolved in our practice too. Uh, so we initially were doing a lot more testing. And I should, I, I think that, you know, there's a, a good thing to point out here. The, a, a big change that we've seen in our practice is been the type of patient we're seeing. So mm. what that, and this is just from my own observation. So from starting the clinic from day one, or even before we, you know, you know, hit the green light that we're going to open and operate. We had a waiting list of a hundred patients already, even before the door opened, uh, just because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of communication in the EDS community, which is great, you know, shared information and knowledge and stuff. But one of those is like, there's a clinic starting up here. So we had a wait list for the very beginning. And I think, and, and this was probably continuous for the first a few months, maybe in the first year or so, that a lot of those patients who we had seen initially were those who were already pr- pretty well established in the community and were in touch with a lot of the goings on and research and things like that. Um, I mean, certainly we still see a lot of very well connected and educated patients now, but those at the beginning were the ones that had, they had they're kind of like the, the, the OGs, the old timers <laughs> who were very knowledgeable and, um, and we're seeking, you know, kind of more guidance and, and resources and things like that. So um, uh, to that effect, um, you know, a, a lot of, and, and some of those patients we've seen where the worst pathogenic testing was, is another example of that. So we had actually acquired patients who had already had diagnosis. Many of our patients had already had diagnosis from the very beginning, and they just were kind of seeking more treatment guidance, or maybe they wanted to be involved in our research studies. Um, so I think that has shifted with time. You know, now we get more of kind of the internal referrals from other departments where like they don't know about this or patients don't know about this or just came upon it. Someone told them about it. This might be something you're interested in looking into. So that shift has happened. And then um, so, yeah, so there's there's been some variations there. And I suspect when we haven't put together the data from those genetic test reports, which is what you're asking about, would it stay the same? I suspect that that would uh, change um, in a sense that we would probably have less of those pathogenic mutations Mm. being found, even though it's a very small number. Um, But uh, more of our patients now, like I said, are just those that, you know, kind of just learn about it um, or or just have a a new referral. And so, uh, and most often than not, so as we know, HEDS and HSD, the genetic testing would show no pathogenic result, um, and so I suspect that that could change in in some way there. 
And I think you had another part of that question too. You remind in, in me. terms of yeah, in terms of how you decide which patients to test, because I, I think I think within yeah. the community there's so much confusion because they they feel like wait, I think I'm pretty similar to this other person. They were offered genetic testing, I wasn't. This is a question yeah. that comes up a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Um, so. Um, for the diagnosis of HSD and HEDS, it's pretty well understood. And even from that data, we're showing hundreds and hundreds of patients being tested and negative results. And that's as we know, there's no genetic test that's going to be positive uh, when we know the diagnosis is HEDS or HSD. Uh, so there are still some patients who have a lot of you know consternation about you know having this anxiety related to vascular EDS or classic EDS or you know a grandparent who had a abdominal aortic aneurysm that ruptured and, and things like that. And so what it comes down to is, is the individual setting. And so we do need to ask every patient, what is your family history? Uh, what are some features that might be alarming to us that could warrant genetic testing or could give us concern that there's something more going on uh, about your family history that shows signs of one of these um, more uh, rare types of EDS? So some of those, just like I mentioned, so aneurysms are one um, and, you know, closer the relationship, the more importance. So if it's like your mother or father had a brain aneurysm and rupture and they died in the age of, you know, 30, like that's a huge red flag. Um, and, it, and it's more distance, the relatives kind of the, the, the less the, so that alarm is. And then the other ones, or, or maybe there's even just sudden death, you know, even if, you know, you don't know what was the cause of death, but. Um, sudden death could be a ruptured aneurysm potentially. And then some other, other red flags that are kind of signs of symptoms of the rare types of EDS uh, would be um, colon rupture as well. Um, so, and we're not talking about, you know, colon cancer or surgery, but spontaneous rupture of the intestines, uh, maybe multiple hernias. You know, that's, it can kind of go along the same lines there. Cleft palate, retinal detachment, those could be features of other rare types. Um, and then uh, non-age-related hearing loss. So those are just some very you know, cursory red flag questions we ask. And I have to give credit to Dr. Frank Romano for her long experience of these disorders because that was actually one of the first questions I had for her when I came <laughs> on seeing these patients because it's, it's important to know. And because, you know, there is a downside to just doing a genetic test on every single patient. It doesn't come like no strings attached. Um, there is, you know, cost and time. There's the anxiety of waiting. There's the anxiety of results. And if those results you know, just end up being an uncertain variant, which ends up being a benign variant, then, uh, I'm, you know, uncertainty is not something that many people want to sit well with. And yeah. even if that uncertainty is benign, um, so we don't want to have to put them through that unnecessarily. And and in the case of HSD and HEDS, genetic testing is not indicated unless there are some of these other uh, red flags, like I just said, we, we went through. That's that's great information. And uh, by the way, I'm going to mention another paper that you published, and I will link all of these in the show notes. So if people are trying to, you know, write, scribble down the names or whatever, they'll they'll they will all be there for people to find. You published a paper in 2023 about the overlap between fibromyalgia and um, heads and HSD, and you actually found that people who had um, both fibromyalgia and either HEDS or HSD were had the most symptom burden and the highest level of comorbidities, regardless of whether they had heads or HSD. 
which is really interesting to me because, you know, we've, we keep dealing with this, which one is more severe. A lot of people that are diagnosed with HSD, they feel like people don't take them as seriously and things like that. So I think that was a very useful piece of information. Um, one of the things I think is frustrating for people is that they often get diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I feel like this is really common in my patients. They've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and then the diagnostic journey kind of stops after that. And do you have any suggestions for people who suspect that there's something more going on have, who have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia? You're absolutely right. That can be a big problem. And it's something I've you know, witnessed firsthand too. And uh, just like you describe it. So the fibromyalgia aspect of the condition is something just like we were discussing earlier, where there's overlap of you know, POTS and the orthostatic intolerance. And, and just like any of those other things, fibromyalgia can run with it. And, and what we have seen in the data collected that there was actually the majority of our patients also um, having this condition of fibromyalgia as well. Uh, we don't know exactly what's causing it. In, in most cases of fibromyalgia, it's, it's not clear what is, if any, cause at all. Um, although we do know from some relatively small but fairly good objective studies that there could be some immune system involvement, there can be some kind of pain pathway signaling involvement and things like that that are thrown askew. So the problem, though, that uh, fibromyalgia gets is it's, yeah, it, there are lots of misconceptions about it in the community, mm -hmm. too, and it kind of permeates through you know, you know, patient groups as well that, um that it's a, a wastebasket diagnosis or, you know, something that there's, there's no good treatment for. And they only give you that diagnosis if they can't come up with anything else. And, and so it's a, a big hindrance for our patients because uh, what I would tell a patient is if you have hypermobility and fibromyalgia, we really need to address them both. Just addressing one doesn't necessarily resolve the other. And we really want to use every resource we can to improve on your condition. So we don't want to leave any stone unturned about anything that can be helpful. And, and so when patients get the diagnosis of fibromyalgia and they miss out on the opportunity to find improvement in treatment for their hypermobility, then they're at a major loss there, right? Uh, because that's only half of the puzzle. And, and, and likewise, if they get a diagnosis of HSD or HEDS, but miss the aspect of fibromyalgia and, and fibromyalgia management, then they'll still, can still be a lot of those chronic pain conditions that, that persist. And as much physical therapy as you can try to do, uh, then, you know, we, we won't find the um, expected um, outcomes that patients want. So uh, we really want to give them all opportunity to improve on both. Definitely. And I take it you see the widespread pain quite commonly in your patients. I, I certainly see that in my patients, and that's a really limiting factor for a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we pulled that, uh, together some data on the symptoms of our patients and the widespread pain, uh, whether or not it was actually within the criteria of fibromyalgia, was over three quarters of our patients. Mm -hmm. And the specific diagnostic criteria, as I mentioned, um, for the full sample of you know, how, how many hundreds of patients that was that we pulled together at least over 500 uh, was the majority. So it was over 56% of our patients. So yeah, it's, it's very prevalent and, and it's all part of that package of treatment that, that needs to be addressed in order to find the best resolution. Yeah. We'll definitely dig into that 
a little bit later because I'm going to hopefully hit you up for some of the questions that were submitted online and uh, kind of do a little rapid fire at the, at the end with some of those if we, if we have time. Yeah, so, great. Yeah, so in your 2022 paper, you had seen at that point 563 patients, and then you had seen 773 by the time you wrote the 2023 paper. Again, I love how you know the research is integrated right there with the clinic and having been a patient. I know you got to fill out all these forms, you know, it's, but it's great because this is how you get the data. It's so helpful. So with that first group, you had found that 39% were diagnosed with hypermobile EDS or your you diagnosed them with hypermobile EDS, 48% you diagnosed with HSD and 13% did not meet the criteria for either. But then in that bigger group of patients, the percentages that were diagnosed with heads were lower, 23% and 77% were diagnosed with HSD. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that or can you kind of elaborate on that at all? Yeah, the first thing that I would suggest and is what I was alluding to earlier is that our patient population has shifted a little bit, okay, Mm -hmm. just on who's aware and who wants to be seen here. Um, And usually those who um, have been around longer are the ones that we've seen first off. And um, so whatever the explanation is, and I'm happy to entertain any theories that are out there, but I'm I'm, I'm guessing is that those who previously had the diagnosis more connected to the communities and networks were, were the first ones to be aware of this information that we had at clinics that were coming in to be seen. Um, so then another thing that has happened too since that time is that we've just seen so many more patients. So when we started, we had, I think it was you know just one or two half days per week. Mm. Um, and so that was maybe about four, between four to six patients per week. Mm-hmm. And then it slowed down during the pandemic so small numbers. So and we're taking small numbers of probably a lot of the similar, same, more of the same diagnoses throughout the first year or two. And then after the pandemic, we were less involved with the coronavirus um, treatment and, and taking up a lot of the patient appointments. But then we expanded the clinic to four half days. So we you know, took a, a good jump there to about 16 patients per week that we were able to evaluate. Still, though, with a, a growing wait list, it was you know starting to grow from six months to a year to eventually at, at one point uh, we had new administration come in that essentially said, all right, we're capping the wait list. We are not taking anyone else because we need to work our numbers down and get through this, which was very unfortunate because patients were calling in. They're just being told, no, we can't see any more uh, patients. So. Uh, you know, I was doing everything I could to try to kind of keep pushing our chair, our department to find resources and see what we can do. And she was agreeable to help our clinic because it um, was um, a, a great tool for research and, and, and kind of education that we're also involved with here to teach medical students and residents about these uh, conditions that often get overlooked. And so she was very supportive, and unfortunately. So this was came in where the hiring process was involved. We got a, a PA, Shelby came to join us, and then all of a sudden we jumped to seeing 30. Now we have access for about 30 to 35 patients per week. And um, and so what that has allowed, it just immediately, waitlist was reopened and then has just come way down. To, to now where you know, our access is you know like a month out or even better. We're only delayed by any other spe- specialists we work with. 
So our access is great. But what that has meant is that we've seen so many more patients more recently, right? So if we look at the numbers from the beginning to the end, it's kind of just like an upward bend. And so I, I think, you know, as other prevalence studies may show is that HSD is just much more common than HEDS. Mm -hmm. And so thereby alone, if we're having many more patients, then that will shift our statistics as well uh, to having a higher number of HSD and the more recent uh, studies that are being done. And I, and just from what I'm seeing myself too, uh, I suspect that any further research that we're doing, that trend will continue to mm -hmm. increase. And for the patients that are diagnosed with HSD and are kind of either they perceive it or their doctors are maybe giving them that impression that they believe it's a less serious condition, um, do you, can you give any insights or what you tell people if, you, if they are thinking that they have heads and you tell them that, nope, you don't meet the criteria for heads, but you do have HSD and uh, how you actually coach them and educate them on those differences? Yeah, I, I think this is really, really important uh, because this is part of the therapeutic process. First, mm -hmm. I mean, to have a diagnosis, right? And then to understand your diagnosis is mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to get anywhere until you get those two things established. Because if you're, you know, and there've been you know, psychological studies about this. If someone's given a, a decision to be made and and one group is told that they can change their mind. The other group is told they can't change their mind. If you're told that you can change your mind and you doubt something, essentially you're not going to be satisfied with your care. You're not going to be satisfied with your treatment, your outcome. So, so establishing a diagnosis, making it very clear what are we looking at when we're doing the diagnostic evaluations as clear as possible so that we, you know, can make it and then we can move on to the most important part, which is the treatment part. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a it's a great question because even this, just like we're talking about fibromyalgia having so many misconceptions, uh, there's there are a lot of misconceptions uh, what you're describing about HSD and HEDS. So, where do we um, come from when we are talking about these terms? Well, I think we should go back to where the research is headed right now because it's so so important. And the first thing I'll do with patients is. Um, at least in our treatment program, is we try to get a poll of understand where patients are in their journey about how long they've been experiencing their symptoms until they've received a diagnosis. And those numbers have been published, they're out there, you know, anywhere from 14 years, maybe improving to 10 to 12 years now. And in, in interesting in our patients, it's I don't know for whatever reason, but it seems like it's always a little bit above that average. So mm. patients, you know, describing they've been 15 years or 20 years they've been dealing with these symptoms until they actually receive some diagnosis of HSD or HEDS, and a large part of that, and and, and not only you know, not to mention is that really unacceptable to where we are in our medical understanding to have someone wait for so long until they receive a diagnosis uh, to be suffering so long, but it also ties into what are the tools we have to make these diagnoses, right? And mm -hmm. if we don't have great lab tests, we don't have, you know, a tissue or saliva sample or blood sample that we can take and then make that diagnosis, have it as prevalent as we, as, as prevalent as we just check like uh, for anemia, we can check a hemoglobin or a thyroid marker. Uh, then there's reason why there is so much delay. We have these clinical criteria, which are helpful, but it takes time. It takes time to find the right person who's even interested in doing it. So 
the where the research is headed is to try to understand what those markers might be, right? So we want to understand and learn if there's something that we can use, if it's a, if it's a genetic test or if it's some other sort of marker that we can take from the blood or saliva. So in order to do that, we have to understand what are the causes of these conditions? What, what is it that is, is it one gene, multiple genes, is it other inflammation or things like that? And in order to do that, that research and in order to expedite that research as quickly as it can to try to improve our diagnostic and, and treatment flow, uh, then that's where we designate these groups of patients as distinctly as we can from HSD versus HEDS, because maybe there are differences uh, from a molecular level, from a mm -hmm. biochemical level uh, between those groups of patients. It's really is theoretical at this point uh, because we haven't seen any other major clear differences in symptoms. I mean, we've got some of our studies where we show with the fibromyalgia and things like that, but symptoms can be the same. Severity can be the same. It, it, and I've seen the whole spectrum uh, from HSD and HEDS patients from one into the next. And so ultimately it requires the same management and, and treatment is, this, is the same between the two. Uh, eventually we might get to a point where we understand that there's some of those differences that we can test for and we can improve our diagnostics. But for now, it's, it's really most important for research than anything else. Um, so we make those labels uh, to help our research studies, uh, but when it comes down to management, it, it's exactly the same. And, and it's, I'm glad that you pointed out about research, because to me, that's one of the most frustrating things. Well, we want PCPs to be able to, like a private practice PCPs, to be able to assess these patients. Um, there's going to be more consistency if they're seen at a place like your facility, where you're, you're seeing such large volumes of this, and you are mm -hmm. able to consistently make the diagnosis as compared to maybe somebody else who has much lower volume. So I feel like that muddies the waters more. Um, I actually yeah. see, yeah, I actually see not infrequently adult patients that have historical joint hypermobility and have signs of HEDS, like skin hyperextensibility, easy bruising, tissue fragility, things like that. But they might currently have a very low Biden score and that's really challenging since the HEDS diagnostic criteria from 2017 start with the Biden score. Now you can get another point from the five point questionnaire, but how do you handle a patient like that? Yeah, so <laughs> it's on a, a case by case basis, but you're right. And it, it could be confusing and frustrating and all the rest. And that's the last thing we want when there's already been so much confusion, right, about symptoms and what are the causes. So we want to try to clear it up as much as we can just to get on with the treatment. But I've definitely seen those patients myself. It's like, for all the reasons that are seen before me, you have a connective tissue problem, right? There's, you know, the gut issues, the cardiac or POTS and things like that. There's something there. And what it comes down to is we're, we're still in the dark um, in, in so many ways about how these things interact and what is underlying it, you know, between mast cell activity and dysautonomia, central sensitization and, and things like that. Uh, but uh, long story short, if it's pretty clear that something's there uh, and it's, it, you know, you can talk to those patients and you can see that um, all those things line up and even, you know, regarding the Biden score, whether it's, you know, localized, historical, or, you know, even mm -hmm. post-surgical changes, things like that. Right. We still want to give them the treatment. We still want them to improve 
any way we can uh, with any every resource we have available to us. Um, so in that case, just like I said, with HEDS and HSD and even now you know, historical or localized hypermobility, the management is really all the same throughout. So at, at least our approach. So we still uh, want them to see our specific physical therapists who work with hypermobile patients, uh, occupational therapists, and, and so forth, and, and do the same counseling. Yeah, that, no, that makes sense. My, my treatment approach is pretty much the same as well, yeah. regardless of which of those that that I ultimately diagnosed them with. So yeah. I was fascinated to learn about your EDS living program and you published about this in 2023. And I would love to know, so you and your colleagues described this innovative care model for HEDS and HSD, which actually has incredible potential for other chronic diseases, which uh, you commented account for 90% of the 4.1 trillion with a T annual healthcare expenditures. So. I feel like this model really has the potential to change so many lives if it could at some point be expanded for other conditions. Um, can you share a little bit about this model? What was challenging about creating it? How has that evolved? Yeah, so I don't think there's any perfect model. I mean, in, in some ways, our limitations at, at our clinic, and I'll just be very forthright about it, is that we see as many patients as we can do the diagnostic evaluation, but we don't have the primary care services. So we don't have the longitudinal follow-up. And that's very important for patients because things change, you know, mm -hmm. month to month, if not year to year. And so that's one of our, our big limitations. But then, you know, vice versa, and, and you, you may share some things like that. Being in the community, you also have limitations because you may not have access to all the resources that you know, we would have an institution like Mayo Clinic. Um, so it's it's a balance. And and we try to balance as best as we can uh, with the time that we have with patients, how to use it uh, to improve their long-term outcomes. Uh, so when we were setting up our clinic and we had long wait lists and we, you know, patients were waiting or maybe even getting turned away, we realized that we have to try to just concentrate and condense down as much of this material information as we can uh, to one, give them the, the information, the education that they need you know, about their condition, but also two, to be able to talk about what their individual needs may be because it's highly variable. We know these mm -hmm. conditions are, there is so much clinical diversity from one patient to the next. And as we say, with someone with HSD or HDS, no two patients are exactly alike. Mm -hmm. So we have to some way accommodate both. Um, so that is what gave us the idea uh, for setting up this treatment program specifically so that we could do the diagnostic evaluation as initial consultation. So we get those patients set up. We know who are the ones that need to do this treatment program, just like I was mentioning earlier about referral to POTS you know, clinic and things like that. We, we refer to ourselves essentially for the EDS living treatment program, which is a day long treatment program. And the intention of that is to give more of the resource on education behind the conditions that we just can't complete in a single visit, right? I mean, we spend so much time going through all these you know, red flags and questions about genetic testing and family history and you know, cardiac exams. So we needed a, a way to afford patients that opportunity for the education. So we tie in some of that. And then we put into that also uh, the um, guidance for some of the standard self-management practices. 
And what that allows is then for another ultimately final wrap-up return visit with our patients that they've got all this basic knowledge, they've got the diagnosis, and now we can talk, here are your testing results, uh, what are your in individual concerns, things that you've learned from the, the treatment program that we can attend to now uh, to make sure we've tied it together as much as we can. So uh, that's, that's the reason um, that we did it. The challenge is that, you know, in some ways, even one day is not enough, right? Right. <laughs> and, and, and so we still have, um, you know, questions that come up, which is fine. I mean, we're available to answer those and provide resources as best as we can. Uh, but then um, inevitably the other challenge is to that getting a day, it's a, it's a quite, a, I wouldn't say intensive program, but it's a lot of information. So for mm -hmm. our patients who have a lot of symptoms, fatigue and nausea and stomach issues, and any of these treatment programs can be difficult. And we do get kind of regular feedback that if this was split up over two days or half days, it would be ideal. And I would love to do it. It's just based on how our clinic practice is, is set up to see patients when we can and who's available at times right now. It's it's in one one day. So that's a, that's a big challenge. Maybe with time, we'll have some ways to improve on that. But I think in what you're mentioning, too, about chronic diseases, a, a, a lot of times the patients with chronic conditions, they're just not given that attention to answer questions about the disease, about the condition, so they learn more and they learn more. A, a lot of things that we take away from that treatment program is that patients come away like, oh, well, I didn't realize that this is something that I could be experiencing or this is a, another condition, um, you know, whether it is, maybe it's some, maybe it is the first time someone's heard of mast cell uh, or, or POTS. And so they know now to be monitoring for that. And because how would you know to ask if you've never even heard of it, right? So right. that's why we want to give them that chance. Oh, that's, that's great. And, and yeah, I can definitely see where uh, trying to absorb that much information in that period of time, but there's the practicalities of how do you actually do this exchange of information that yeah. is so important. And yeah. what has been the most surprising thing about the Mayo Clinic EDS clinic that you found? Well, I think it's uh, the patient population at first, which I was just referring to earlier, very educated, very well connected. And, and <laughs> I was embarrassed to say that when I first was getting to this field, there are so many patients who are educating me uh, in, in so many ways. And, um, but it's, you know, is as long as you take it in, in good humor and, um, you know, as a educational opportunity, it's all for the better, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much we learn from our own patients. And in fact, that's the reason why we have set up a patient advisory group uh, from our clinic patients we've seen in our clinic that we meet on a monthly basis now just to get feedback from patients. Uh, because there's so, so much going on that they're doing, they're learning that we want to know too. I mean, there's two sides, there's two faces to it. So uh, that's that was um, an important part of it. And you said something at the EDS Society conference that, that I have often said too, which is you don't necessarily need to go to somebody who is an expert. If you, and one of the first rapid fire questions is actually going to be related to this, but um, if you're PCP, if you don't have access to the Mayo Clinic EDS clinic, and if you have a PCP, though, that is empathetic, wants to learn, is willing to work with you and is curious, then that might be able to be, that might be hugely beneficial for you. So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's a very common question we get because as you're saying, because we're limited uh, from doing those primary care services. So patients say, well, now what? I've got a diagnosis. My primary mm -hmm. care doesn't know anything about this. And, you know, we remain as a resource. There are Mayo Clinic resources on EDS uh, that, you know, pale in comparison to all the resources that EDS Society has. So uh, we would encourage uh, them to uh, offer those resources uh, to their primary care. And if they are interested to learn, and, and many of them are, many of our patients do find good primary doctors who are willing to go on the EDS Society website and, and if not attend conferences, at least, you know, mm -hmm. peruse some of the ECHO programs and things like that that they have. And, and that's the key feature of a primary care, a good primary care. For, definitely. And so this is a perfect lead into the, the rapid fire questions. I have a few for you. And the first one is what would you like PCPs to know about AGDS and HSD? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, First off, I would say that there is treatment because it's so, so disappointing to hear patients say, well, I went to this doctor and they said, there's nothing I, there's nothing you do to treat it. Like, well, the answer is that's what couldn't be more from the truth, that there are things that we can do to improve on this, to prevent injuries and things like that. So if a primary care needs to know one thing, know that there are treatment resources out there. We generally do see good outcomes and that's what we seek. And we should try to um, uh, reach those outcomes that we want to to find keeping patients functional, improve quality of life, and all of those other endpoints. And I know you, uh, actually, it's interesting that you uh, talked about our different approaches or different practice settings, and it's pretty much as opposite as you can get, because I'm in a community and I really struggle with referrals to different specialists, and I have patients that fly in from different places, and so I have no idea what, what they have locally to them. You have the exact opposite situation, but I, I am able to follow people over time, which is which is helpful. So I see a lot of you know things that I think okay, I can like you said, we learn from our patients, right? We learn a lot from our patients and see what things seem to be beneficial. Do you have thoughts from the patients that you've seen about things like uh, regenerative medicine, prolotherapy, stem cell therapy? Have you seen people benefit from that or or not? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's it's a, it's a an interesting area because that research is still growing too. I have had patients benefit from it. And the advantage that I see uh, right off the bat is that if, if we're talking about even, you know, regenerative or prolotherapy, there's still some intervention, but it's not quite as that risk of surgery, right? Which mm -hmm. has much more uh, um, risk of infections and complications and things like that. So that's the benefit I see right off the bat is that there's likely an increased safety profile with those types of measures. I mean, we would hope that it doesn't need to come to that point that we can find other modalities that are even less invasive. Uh, but if that's the case, that's, I would say that's my impression is that it, it, maybe there's this alternative surgery, avoid some of those other surgical risks. Yeah, definitely. And what are the things that you have found to be most effective in your patients in terms of treatment? Wow. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's the really the million dollar question now, because once we go through all the diagnostic, we set that, we've done the testing, all those things. Now, what do we do for treatment? And, um, and, you know, in some ways, in the back of my mind, I wonder if, you know, out in the community and even at, at our site, if we just need, if we, if there's not enough focus on treatment, even if it's from patients alone who like, oh, I've got a diagnosis, that's all I wanted. It's like, well, no, there's another piece to this. There's, you know, there's a piece to like, how do you improve with this condition? How do you, you know, improve your function and, 
and, and things like that. So don't just stop at getting a diagnosis. You know, you you deserve to find improvement in your quality of life. Um, so lots of treatments out there. We do have another research study right now. I mean, so many irons in the fire right now when it comes to research here, which is is, is great, but uh, it keeps us certainly busy. And one of them is an outcome study to look and see what patients are reporting they're using mm. and, and associated symptoms. Because I think that's that's huge. I mean, we can uh, you know just talk and talk to patients until the cows come home about all the things about massage and acupuncture and heat therapy and things like that. Uh, but we want to have some clinical data to back it up, and there's not a lot of data. Um, one thing that I that I find patients pretty commonly report benefit from, though, and so that's probably one of the first things I benefit from or, or, or that uh, encourage after the exercise and physical therapy is is the heat therapy. Now, mm. autonomic dysfunction can kind of throw a wrench in that, but the heating pads, warm baths, things like that. So that's obviously very safe as long as you're not burning yourself. So it's a good one. And, and, and I'm dealing with a, an issue right now, and this yeah. is a light therapy device that I use that that applies heat and also light. And if I find a lot of those things very helpful for me personally. Yeah, and, it, it, yeah. you'd be surprised how many patients come here and sit next to me in my exam room and they just show me, yeah, I got my heating pad in my purse right here. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, there you go. <laughs> they're 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 ready. They're ready. What are yeah. your thoughts? What are your thoughts specifically on muscle relaxants? Because uh, and, and of course, when I say muscle relaxants, I'm not referring to like in the operating room paralyzing the muscles, but you know the drugs that the medications mm -hmm. that patients typically think of as muscle relaxants. Yeah, this came up actually at the EDS Society conference in Dublin, and I was asked this question and. It's a good question because we're all still learning. Again, when I'm talking about lack of data, there is definitely a lack of data when it comes to patients with hypermobility who's been given a muscle relaxant as a treatment. Um, and there are some interesting theories behind it. I think both ways they're very good. I, I don't, I, I you know, tend not to try to you know jump the gun when it comes to prescribing muscle relaxants. Although I understand that um, there's very good argument of how they can be effective. Certainly, so just kind of in a, in a nutshell uh, for the listeners that if the pain related to hypermobility is a result of the spasm because the muscle is trying to you know counterbalance that hypermobility and the muscle is then working extra it's causing spasm and pain and discomfort then that's the idea how a muscle relaxer could work which i think is, is a viable uh, theory also counter to that though being you know kind of a disclaimer that if you have hypermobility because the muscles are too relaxed could that increase hypermobility and increase injury yeah that's a very good theory too so what it comes down to is we just need to get some more objective um, understanding trials and things like that to know where, where does the answer lie? So in the meantime, I would just go on a case by case basis, you know, mm -hmm. patients describe where's your pain? Does it hurt here? What are kind of the features of your condition? And then, and then have an idea of whether a muscle relaxer could be useful or not. Sure. And another controversial or somewhat, I guess, controversial area is bracing. What are your thoughts on bracing. And of course that can range from, you know, a compression type sleeve to like a rigid brace for a joint. Yeah. Yeah. So that is an interesting one too. And actually the first time I, I came upon the um, research and application of bracing was from Dr. Chopra. I've gone to, has been on your show recently too. Yeah. And he's got vast experience on pain management, certainly with EDS and hypermobility. And, and, and I know he was at, at least the um, 
times I was listening to him give talks on that as a proponent of bracing as a kind of a, a pain remedy. I think so. It's just as he's explaining it, uh, there is a place for the bracing is a pain modality that can be safer than surgery, can be potentially safer than you know medications that have all these side effects. Um, so uh, then there would be the, the maybe the counter argument from the physical therapist who would say that you know bracing can lead to weakening of the muscle, deterioration of the joint stability if it's used for a prolonged period, if there's muscle atrophy and things like that. So we want to avoid prolonged bracing to avoid some of that um, decreased natural stability that's um, given by the muscles and joints. So again, really the, the best answer I had would be on a case-by-case -case basis. Yes, if we're talking about pain management, it can be very useful, certainly to get someone to the point where they're able to be more active. Bracing could be very helpful, right. uh, but just be aware of their risk with prolonged bracing. Um, so... And that's and that's others. what I and that's what I find too that oftentimes if you support a joint at least in some capacity they can actually be more active and that can be uh, really really helpful to improving mm -hmm. functional capacity and, and quality of life. Uh, yeah, so people exactly. wanted to know if you had plans to open another center and how difficult is it to be seen at Mayo if you're out of state? Yeah, I, I think access worldwide could improve and I would love to see access. I mean, we're happy to have patients come from all over as I tell our patient groups at our treatment program, but really what that's a sign when patients are traveling so far is that they just have poor access locally. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we want to make that better. Uh, I was in touch with some of our colleagues in Rochester at one point we were interested in trying to develop a similar program or find interest from, because that's what it really comes down to is you've got to find those providers and clinicians who are interested in, in learning about this condition and treating patients with these conditions. And so um, and that's, I think that's really the main obstacle there because once it's there and, and as I was interested, as I mentioned from the very beginning, if you find those resources, you can use them and you'll certainly find the patients who want to come and be seen for them. So um, the development of the program in Rochester, I, I haven't heard much more about it recently. So for now, we do take referrals from Mayo Clinic Arizona and Mayo Clinic Rochester for now. Um, and, and, and maybe they just um, thought that uh, we were able to see more patients so that there was no need to uh, do that. I don't know. But anyway, um, how are patients seen for, from us, uh, for us by out of town? Uh, so regularly, we get patients from out of town. We do do video consultations. Um, what mm -hmm. I say about that is we our first initial evaluation though we do face to face uh, because we want to go through all of the things that we can on exam and, and make sure that we're giving the best treatment recommendations we can. But for follow up visits, we can do those virtually to makes it that makes it a little bit easier when it comes to travel. Yeah, def definitely makes it easier for people for those for those follow ups. And in terms of flares. Um, what do you recommend that patients do if they are experiencing flares? Yeah, so this would kind of come into that treatment category question, I think, pretty well. And what are all the various treatments out there? And it's just dependent on what is the what are the what are the characteristics of the flare? Um, you know, is it just simply pain flare, or is it associated with kind of neurologic symptoms? Is there some autonomic involvement? Uh, too. So it's it's highly variable. Multiple modalities of treatment that can be used um, just for the same reason. There can be multiple causes of symptoms. 
Um, so we would just have to, have to see what is the intensity of the flare, the timing, you know, other kind of typical features that we get on, on history. Okay. And last uh, question from the listeners or from the social media post that I made. Um, do you have a post-diagnosis to-do list? Ah, yeah, that's a good one. So that's something that we cover in our wrap-up visit usually. And it is um, usually to the point that we've gone through all those diagnostic steps. It's usually, hopefully at least, uh, wrapped up pretty well that we've done all the testing we need. So it's not like you need to do a routine echocardiogram every six months. No, we've, you know, we've, we've done all those things that we need to test for. There's not any specific uh, um, surveillance that needs to be done other than what you would do routinely with your primary care doctor. So routine lab work, vital signs, blood pressure checks, you know, laboratory analysis. And certainly if symptoms change though, then you might need some more immediate attention so the first thing that's on our to-do list when I'm writing out my notes is to have some sort of continuity of care, at least with the physical therapy. Um, now, primary care, having them be updated on their clinical documentation and things like that is a good, important one, too. So make sure they have access to notes and records and they can understand what your evaluation and treatment has encompassed. Uh, but the physical therapy, if that can be something that's continued locally, or at least access to someone who's knowledgeable. And there are usually more physical therapists out there who are knowledgeable about hypermobility than primary care doctors. And that's something that I uh, would direct patients to the EDS Society's provider directory website to see who are the therapists there that they could potentially work with um, to you know, avoid injuries or even see if, if they do have a, a pain flare at a joint and it is something that can be ameliorated with physical therapy. Okay. And, and where would you like to go next with your research? Well, I actually was asked a similar question today. So we're running our treatment program today. So I was with the group earlier. There's lots of things. And, and I, just to kind of a, just a brief summary of the things that we're looking at now. So as I mentioned, we're looking at outcomes. We're looking at treatments. Uh, we're looking at sex differences of patients, why there's so many more women diagnosed uh, than men. It's, even though men are diagnosed, we know this is not necessarily a sex chromosome, but there is some, some penetrance that is certainly increased for women. Um, so those are the big ones. And then the biggest probably is this you know, biomarker, so the genetic analysis and, and things like that. What can we do to improve the diagnostic testing, so decrease that time span from symptom onset to when a diagnosis is made. Uh, the EDS Society has got the HEDGE study running. So if you're not aware of that, I'm sure you've given a plug for this here on your show. But if you're diagnosed with HDS, I think they've actually already completed uh, their collection, but hoping that there will be some great, interesting results that come from that. Or if not, at least, you know, we'll take away some information. So that's probably uh, a very big, interesting one for me because, you know, that will kind of clear up some of this confusion too that permeates about HSD and HEDS if we know more of the, the background, the biochemical. Uh, one that hits home, though, on a personal basis is a question too that comes up more frequently about uh, the, the overlap of neurodivergence. I know you had Dr. Mm. Nichols on your show previously too about yep. you know, the ADHD, the autism. So it, it's just incredible how these coincidences or, or uh, these these things that happen in life that's part of our destiny or predestination, if that's something you believe in. But our third child was diagnosed with autism. And this was mm -hmm. after I'd already started seeing patients and had started running our EDS clinic. He was also found to have a de novo mutation in his P10 um, you know, tumor suppressor protein. So 
that mm. is a it's a rare disease on its own and it's just it just like blew my mind that here i am now even if i'm not experiencing heds myself but experiencing family member with a rare genetic disorder and i'm <laughs> the same exact thing my patients are doing going online researching right. who, right. where are the centers of excellence who has seen these patients what is the research and it, it just blew my mind and, and and i went through all the same pitfalls that patients experience about how do i schedule or there's a wait list it's booking until 2024 and uh, so so long story short that's a, a very um a, major interests of mine, this uh, overlap of the neurodivergence, autism, and um, and connective tissue disorders. Yeah, that's a really fascinating area for, for sure. And speaking of doing um, online searches, because that's definitely how I got most of my information. I was working as an anesthesiologist in the operating room and had, had experienced a lot of different problems that kind of led to this transition ultimately. Do you have any tips for people for how to use you know, Dr. Google in the most successful way, because it can be, I mean, I talk to people sometimes about dose and that kind of thing, but you know, there's confirmation bias, right? There's a lot of challenges that come along with online searches. Yeah, absolutely. Or even online communities too. They can, mm -hmm. they can work with you and they can work against you. And I, I know you're taking a lot of great questions from your social media community too. And, and it's fantastic that there's these networks there that can support patients and support research and support our understanding. Uh, but just and on the same, uh, you know, same side, there's also, you know, the kind of pitfalls that come with like increasing anxiety and things like that, or you know, not knowing what is the real condition. So if, um, you know, I can say for resources, you know, I, I mentioned earlier too, the you know, Mayo Clinic has some, you know, simple guides um, that are very easy to understand on EDS and HSD. Uh, but most of our patients and probably listeners are pretty well past that kind of elementary <laughs> level of understanding. So the next best really is is um, the EDS Society, you know, the conferences they put together, all the specialists that are there. It's, it's by far uh, the best resource to use. Um, so if you're not sure about what you're hearing in the online communities, you know, check through some of the resources through the EDS Society. Uh, if you still can't find those answers, don't hesitate to reach out to your primary care doctor. If your primary care doctor doesn't know the answer, then maybe they at least know someone where they can ask or maybe direct you to some of those more reliable resources. So no need to sit on something that's weighing on your mind too heavily, causing more anxiety. You, they, they, we have the world of information out there at our fingertips, but just you know, getting the right kind of guidance on how to use it is important. Definitely. And, and I like to end with hypermobility hacks. So do you have any hypermobility hacks that you can share with us? Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is, this is always a, a good one. So, um, when, you know, I, I see patients and, and talk to them about all the things that they've gone through, um, as far as the you know, diagnostic process and treatment outcomes and things like that. Um, and, and what are potential treatment options? So, yeah, and just like you pulled out your heating pad there, probably the, the biggest hack that I've learned out from patients is too, is that, that, benefit of the heat therapy, um, how it can be so soothing and alleviating uh, in a way if it's muscle spasm that in increasing circulation to the area, uh, the heat is really your friend as long as, you know, you're not heat intolerant from pots and things like that. So do be careful with, you know, extended duration of the hot showers and warm baths and things like that. 
But that's probably if I were to say anything, and I, I, I can't take credit for it. It's just what I've learned from my patients that what they've experienced that I, in my mind, is really the safest and easiest go to is the, is the heat therapy itself. Sure. Okay. And uh, last question, uh, where can people find you online? And then I guess also, if, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish that I had asked? Yeah. So I am always happy to enter, entertain questions and, and learn, uh, as, as I said, a steep learning curve as it has been and continues to be. So uh, you can find me on Twitter, on X and uh, at, at KNIDAC. And uh, there is also a website for our clinic, but um, that's not as much for contact, but there's a Mayo Clinic Connect website where we share uh, research updates and things like that. So, um, and then there's also a website for our clinic. I don't know if you have show notes, but you know, I can yep. give you those um, if you want to add those in. Uh, those are some pretty quick and easy links. Um, any questions? No, I, I think um, that uh, we, we covered a lot and, and I'm really glad to be here because I think, you know, just getting this information out there is half the battle, you know, and, and then taking away what we can when what research comes up. Um, I, I'd be happy to come back on anytime, too, if we have some groundbreaking research that we're, we're ready to share. I would, I would love to be able to give any of those updates, too, anytime we can. I would, I would love that. So consider that you have an open invitation anytime you have like updates like that to share. Cause I think, you know, we, we all learn differently. So even if a paper is open access, it sometimes really helps to hear from someone like yourself who was involved in the research and can really give us such a better understanding. And I feel like that can be so beneficial. And then, and then we do link all of those things in the show notes so then they can refer to the paper also if they want, but yeah, I would yeah. love I would love to have another conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Several more. Yeah, there's there's a there's a clinical side to it definitely and and from what we're seeing and why we're doing the research. So, yeah, well, I'd love to love to keep that keep that conversation going. Yeah, f- fabulous. Fabulous. Well, you have been listening to the Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast, and my guest today was Dr. Dacre Knight, founder of the Specialty Clinic for Treating Patients with Hypermobility Syndromes at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Knight, thank you so very much for coming on the Bendy Bodies podcast today and sharing your incredible wisdom and knowledge with us and and your experiences. And it's just so great to be able to share this information with the community. Absolutely. My my absolute pleasure to be here and, and really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with a Hypermobility MD podcast. Visit our new website at bendybodiespodcast.com, where you can now view guest profiles and show notes with links to products and journal articles. Leave me a comment, sign up for updates, leave a review or a voicemail, and access the podcast on your favorite player all directly from our website. You may hear your voicemail in a future episode where we answer your question or dive into your gracious feedback. Follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories. So be a buddy and engage our community by using the hashtag bendy buddy. That's hashtag B-E-N-D-Y-B-U-D-D-Y. You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn at HypermobilityMD. Visit hypermobilitymd.com for information about medical services and one-on-one coaching. 
This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. Opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the host or any particular organization. Sponsorship of the podcast does not necessarily mean an endorsement. Thank you for being a part of our community, and we'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.